0: Father, your word says that the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge of you. The intimate knowledge of who you are. So as we as a church want to grow in wisdom this morning, we ask first and foremost for a unified, all-consuming passion to know you more. Not just Accumulating theological facts. Not just adding to our understanding. But Father, we want a intimate knowledge. We want to truly know who you are. Give us the heart of Moses when he asked, God, would you show me your glory? Father, that, may that be at the heart of all of our prayers for wisdom. Would you show us your glory? Would we be unified around a pursuit of who you are, knowing you, knowing your son, Jesus, God, the Son incarnate, the wisdom of you made flesh. And Father, from that place, that made in your image give us wisdom for how to apply your will in our church? Would you use our knowledge of who you are in application in our relationships with each other and how we think about and how we relate to each other at First Point? In well, particularly, I ask for the brothers who are at the Nine Marks Weekender in Washington, D.C. We ask for the wisdom that they lack. Give them clarity of what's a scriptural command and what's prudential. And Father, where there are issues of prudence and wisdom issues, we ask that these brothers would think clearly about what most honors you and serves us as a body. As we think about the kindergartners and uh, fifth graders coming into our service coming up in June. Father, I just want to pause and ask for your wisdom in all of our discipleship efforts for the next generation. Father, may we not lean on our own understanding, but in all the ways we're seeking to disciple the kids in this church, may we acknowledge you and trust that you will direct our paths. Father, whether that ministry to the next generation looks Uh, Like a formal structured ministry uh, This corporate gathering Or the Sunday morning children's discipleship hour Or the Wednesday night Awana classes Whether that looks like family worship For the families in this church Whether that ministry is informal uh, A conversation with a child before the service Or a car ride with a five-year-old About an early profession of faith for the parents Father, whether it's formal or informal, whether we are in this room or we are out in our homes or in the car, wherever we are, Father, give us wisdom as we seek to disciple the children and the students in this church. Father, we also ask for relationships across the body. Father, give us wisdom for how to relate to each other, wisdom for when to encourage and when to challenge. Wisdom for how to encourage and how to challenge. Wisdom for how to listen and care for each other well. Father, we need your wisdom in this church. And we need your wisdom now as we come to your word. We want to see Jesus. We want to see your wisdom made flesh. And we just lack the ability to see apart from your grace so give us your wisdom this morning father may I only speak words that are true father give the church wisdom to discern if what I'm saying is from your word or not and where it is according to your word I ask that you would give wisdom for how to apply it that your spirit would take these truths and apply it in ways that I may not even be aware of Because he is so willing, you are so willing to give wisdom. So we look to you, doesn't it? If you give me a survival handbook here in Palm Beach County, I don't mean to be rude this morning, but honestly, I'm just not going to read it. Why? Because I live three minutes to a Publix down the road. I don't need to know about a survival handbook when Publix is so close by. I don't need to know how to eat a cabbage palm or how to cook rose moss when Publix has a bogo on queso. I know what to do when queso is available and it's not eating rose moss. But give me that same survival handbook in the middle of the Everglades Without any outside support for, say, six months All of a sudden that survival handbook Becomes very, very interesting, doesn't it? Knowing it, applying it Would be a matter of life and death Where you read a book matters At least you got to know it mattered To the first Christians who read the book of James Looking at chapter 1, verse 1 with me Where are they reading this letter? Not from home. They're not reading this letter from home. Verse 1 says, James wrote this to the 12 tribes, a reference to ethnic Jews, of the dispersion. Or I like how the NIV puts it, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. We don't really know what displaced these ethnic Jews from their home. It could have been uh, centuries before uh, their parents being uh, dispersed out of Jerusalem under Assyrian or Babylonian rule. It could have been that. Uh, Or it could have been uh, recent persecution, perhaps connected to Acts 11, uh, the reference to Stephen's stoning and the dispersion of the church there. We don't exactly know what uh, dispersed these Christians that James is writing to, But we do know that James is talking to immigrants, exiles, pilgrims living in a foreign land, where there's suffering, trials, partiality, demonic wisdom, worldliness, oppression from the rich, and so many of their own sins to repent of. And as they get this word from James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they need God's wisdom to follow Jesus in a context that's not their home. Does that sound familiar? We find ourselves in a similar spot, right? Whether you're from the DR or Jamaica or you've been born and raised in Boynton Beach. What does Hebrews 13:14 say? This world's not our home. We're pilgrims on our way to heaven. While Boynton Beach is wonderful, life's not all bogos and queso, is it? No, it's hard. Sometimes we have to eat rose moss. We have trials of various kinds. James tells us this. That in our nice homes, we have to do battle with the devil. In our friendships, we have to subdue the passions that are raging war inside of us. On our pilgrimage to heaven, we have to walk through trials of various each and every day, don't we? These are the kinds of things that James wants to talk about in this letter. It's intense. He's intense. James reminds me of this old mentor that I had in high school. His name was Chandler Allen. And you got to know about Chandler is that Chandler was super intense. He was not your typical college student. When he saw you, he had this reputation in our church For going up to you and asking Brother, sister How's your soul? Wow <laughs> It would catch you off guard You're like trying to make your way to the restroom It's like, hey, can we get back to that later? He wanted to know about your soul It was intense He didn't want to talk about the ball game Or the strange weather this past week This reminds me a lot of James. He got all up in these Jewish Christians' business. Showed them where they were being hypocritical or immature or needed growth. He stepped on all of their toes. He's going to step on our toes. But he did this for a life-giving, beautiful purpose. As we're going to see, he wanted them and he wants us to be whole disciples of Jesus. We'll see that today and throughout the book. Wholeness is what God is after. Full devotion to Jesus. Not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Not an empty faith, but a faith that's full of good works. Not just a knowledge, but a kind of knowledge that overflows and care for the orphans. Not a mere profession of Jesus but a tongue that's controlled by the spirit not partial discipleship but whole discipleship like I said James doesn't mess around (laughs) he'll rip off our spiritual toupees and show us how bold we we actually are he's not an easy read believe me I've been reading this book over and over again Feels like I've been to physical therapy all week. My spiritual muscles are tired from wrestling with this book. Seen some seriously weak areas in my own life. I'll just tell you that. I've been praying that the Lord would show where you are spiritually weak too. The reason I want you guys to see how spiritually weak you are is because of this other truth that we'll see. So James exposes these areas in our lives so that he can be able to show us how to more wholly follow Jesus. He shares this profound wisdom of how to be more conformed to the image of Jesus. James gives guidance. He doesn't only show us where we are spiritually weak, but he stays in the room with us and Gives us guidance of how to become spiritually strong. And that's what I'm excited about for our church as we study this book. We'll follow what he says, what James says. We will flourish. As a community of believers made in the image of God, we will flourish as we bring more of our lives into conformity with the image of Jesus. That's what we want here through our study of James. This is not about checking boxes, getting a hundred on the test. It's not about that. It's about being who we are created to be, whole disciples of Jesus on our pilgrimage to heaven. That's what I want for you all. That's what I want for myself. And I think that's what James wanted to share with his first readers and with us this morning. Wise guidance to be whole pilgrims. That's what we're going to see in our study. Wise guidance to be whole pilgrims. For this morning in particular, James shares guidance for needy pilgrims. Needy pilgrims. That's who James is talking to in chapter 1 verses 1 through 12. If you don't feel needy this morning, I don't really know what to tell you. You can go take an extra long bathroom break if you'd like. This sermon's not for you. At best, it will be an interesting self help talk. But if you feel needy for God's wisdom this morning, this sermon's for you. And there's tremendous hope for you, there's guidance three kinds of guidance that we're going to look at. There's guidance to be perfect through your imperfect circumstances. That'll be verses 2 through 4 and verse 12. There'll be guidance to be wise when you're unwise. And then there will be guidance to be heavenly minded no matter your earthly success. It'll be verses 9 through 11. let I'll just start off with guidance to be perfect through your imperfect circumstances. Looking at verse 2, James seems so insensitive to me. Count it all joy. In the backdrop of suffering exile and broken marriages, what are James' first words? Count it all joy. He hasn't even made it into the hospital room before he's crying out to these parents who have maybe lost their child. Count it all joy. This doesn't seem very pastoral to me if I'm being honest. (laughs) If I'm being honest, I don't like James's vibe in verse 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, how is James just not being an insensitive jerk? Because he knows their suffering is not pointless, he knows it's producing something, something beautiful. Count your dispersion all joy because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your suffering, our suffering, is not meaningless. If you miss anything this morning, don't miss that. Your suffering is not meaningless. This trial and that trial, God is working without being the author of evil, God's using evil and the trials in your life to make you more steadfast, more committed to Christ, more resolute, more faithful. You know this. You know this. That's what James says anyways. Did you catch that in verse 3? Count trials all joy. Why? For you know. you know to have present tense joy James appeals to our memory of the past and specifically our memory of what has deepened our trust and our commitment to Jesus just think about it what has deepened your commitment to Jesus has it been the easy times has it been the bogos on queso Those times are great. I'm all about those times. And God uses them to show his mind-bending kindness to us. But for most of us, maybe all of us, definitely true of me, we know that our relationship has grown stronger, not during the easy times, but during the hard times, when our faith has been tested, right? And the logic of this passage is that our joy in current trials is connected to our memory of how God has used previous trials to deepen our resolve to follow Jesus. So if we are going to have joy in present tense trials, we need to look to past tense trials. Which, by the way, is why I've been inviting some of you to share your testimonies about your trials with our students at youth group. Because of their age, they don't have the data bank of stories of how God has been faithful during trials like you do. But you can share it with them. You can fill up their data bank of stories of God's faithfulness. The same is true of all of us. We can share about our trials. We can ask about others' trials to increase our history as a church, of how God, has been faithful to us in our trials, and how we have become more steadfast. So ask each other, how has God met you in your darkest moments? When you had cancer, how did you experientially know the character of God? Or when you lost your spouse of 30 years, How is God faithful to you? How did you become more steadfast and more conformed into the image of Jesus? Or maybe, how have you experienced God in the monotony of life? So not just the really hard times, but just the monotony of life in a fallen world. How have you seen God make you more steadfast when you've been changing dirty diapers for it feels like the zillionth time? How has God made you more steadfast on the drive to work? Or the post-lunch afternoon lull at work when you just want to go home? How has God made you more steadfast there? Ask each other that. How have you seen God make you more steadfast in the ordinary trials? It's so important that we ask each other these questions, that we reflect on how God has used past tense trials, because apart from God's grace, our default perspective on our past trials is that they are meaningless. That's how we naturally think apart from God's wisdom and God's grace. Our natural bent is to believe that to believe the lie that suffering is pointless. But if we believe this premise, if we believe this lie, this will steal our joy. That's what verse 3 is saying. It'll sabotage our joy as we head into present trials. It fosters discontentment. And also, it's just not true. It's not true. Trials are not like the game Frogger, where you're just trying to evade and move around trials to make it to heaven. That's not the way that God uses trials. They're more like running an extra mile when you're exhausted. That extra mile is doing something, right? Some of you who hate running are like, yeah, it's doing something. It's making me angry. (laughs) In fact, I'm a little bit angry that you'd even talk about running right now. (laughs) Noted. But that extra mile is also making your legs stronger. It's improving your cardiovascular system. Ultimately, it's producing what? Steadfastness. That's how God wants us to think about our trials of various kinds. He's not keeping you steadfast despite your trials. He's keeping you steadfast through the means of your trials. And what James is saying in verse 4, we have to catch this, is that if you'll press into the Lord during that trial, letting that trial have its full effect, over time, the steadfastness God's working in you through that trial will help you make it to the finish line. It will bring you home. And when you finish your race, when you make it to heaven and verse 4a gives birth to verse 4b, your imperfections will be eclipsed by perfection. When you see the complete face of Jesus, your incompleteness will, the remaining incompleteness in your life will be transformed into completeness. And you won't lack any blessing. That's where trials are leading us. Trials, steadfastness, heaven. Which is where verse 12 comes in a kind of bookend to verses 2 through 4 what does James say in verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to to those who love him do you guys see the similarities in language between verses 2 through 4 and verse 12 joy in verse 2 blessed in verse 12 Trial in 2 and 12, steadfast in 3, 4, and 12, testing in 3 and test in 12, have its full effect in 4 and remain steadfast and stood the test in 12, perfect, complete, and lacking in, no, in nothing in 4, and the crown of life in 12. In verse 12, James is basically rephrasing verses 2 through 4 to make the point really clear. That extra mile, that trial, is doing something. And it leads to steadfastness. It leads to the finish line. And the finish line leads to the crown of life. A life perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. An eternity of not lacking anything. Which is why James can go into the hospital room parents who have just lost their child and say, count it all joy. With with tears streaming down his cheeks, he can look at these parents and with deep sadness say, this isn't meaningless. It's not pointless. It's preparing you. Preparing you to receive the crown of life. God's using this while you lack not now, one day you won't lack. In the past couple of weeks, our church has experienced a lot of great things, a lot of happy moments in our church. Joss and Allie had their baby. We had their Awana Awards ceremony this past Wednesday night, which was great. We've had some happy moments in the life of our church, but we have also had some trials. Wounds that have taken us by surprise. Wounds that we are still dealing with decades after the fact. Then there are the chronic low-grade trials all of us experience living in a world touched by sin. And if these trials had no meaning, they didn't have a purpose. And I stood up here and said, Look for the silver lining. Look on the bright side. I wouldn't cut it, would it. No, that would be trite. That would be mean. To be honest with you, I wouldn't have showed up this morning if that was the case. If suffering was meaningless, I wouldn't have showed up for this sermon. But each trial, no matter the kind, does have a purpose. And that purpose has a ripple effect throughout all of eternity. It has an effect of blessing for you that eternity cannot exhaust. Every trial is connected through every joy in heaven. We can count our trials all joy because each one is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, a crown of life beyond all compassion. Our trials are doing something Our imperfect circumstances are preparing us For our perfect home in heaven One day we won't be pilgrims anymore One day soon we'll be home Perfectly whole disciples of Jesus But until then we're pilgrims aren't we? navigating these trials takes tremendous wisdom that we don't have, right? Point two, verses five through eight. Guidance to be wise when you're unwise. Coming out of verses two through four, I can imagine some of James's readers thinking like, okay, James, I'm with you. I understand how God is using my trials to produce steadfastness. But the reality is I'm heading into a meeting right now and I don't know what to say. I miss my husband so bad and I'm struggling with jealousy toward my friend who's about to celebrate her 50th wedding anniversary. How do I navigate my messy feelings and also rejoice with those who rejoice? I get that I won't lack in heaven then, but I'm lacking wisdom right now on earth. James read their minds. He reads our minds. He says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, I think we could insert, if any of you lacks wisdom in your various trials, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. While steadfastness and wisdom may seem like separate insights, verses two through four are like one fortune cookie, Verses 5 through 8 are another fortune cookie. Both true things, just not connected. I think James is intertwining steadfastness and wisdom. I think he's bringing them together and reminding us that God will not only use our trials, but he'll be with us in our trials. He's ready, eager to generously give us wisdom in that difficult conversation. He's not miffed or irritated at your request for wisdom if you're fighting jealousy. No, he's ready to give. He gives wisdom without reproach. Just ask. He's your father, he's ready to give. But here's the deal this is what James wants to transition to. You have to sincerely want God's wisdom, you have to really want God's wisdom. I think that's what James means when he says to ask in faith with no doubting. Because here's what he can't mean. He can't mean that God will only hear a prayer if it has 100% faith. That would contradict 1 John, which says if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. We all have varying degrees of doubt as we pray. But while we won't have perfect faith, James says, we can't have consistent, over the long haul, sincere faith. A single-minded, whole desire for God's wisdom. Which is set in contrast to the double-minded, wind-tossed, unstable prayer. Which audibly asks God for wisdom, but really wants, really believes in the world's wisdom. I think that's the crux. Of what James is getting at right here. Of whether God will give you wisdom or not. Are you actually wanting his wisdom? Or what you really want is the world's wisdom? Remember, the definition of wisdom is not being a successful businesswoman. Or an excellent student. Or finding the life hacks to have an easy life book of Proverbs, which one theologian says is the iceberg underneath the book of James, defines wisdom another way. It says, The beginning of wisdom is intimate knowledge of God. Proverbs 9, verse 10. Wisdom is not limited to knowing God. We should make that point. It helps us to know ourselves and it spills out into relationships and work. And all sorts of other practical areas of our, of our lives. Doug Moo defines wisdom as the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. It's pretty good, pretty comprehensive. And James will pick up some of that in his letter. We'll get there. But before we get there, I think we should not move too fast beyond that point that I just read earlier from Proverbs 9. At the beginning of wisdom, Intimate knowledge of God How do you think that should inform Our prayers for wisdom If God's Character is the foundation The bedrock Of wisdom how should that inform Our prayers For wisdom Wisdom heading into a Difficult meeting or fighting Jealousy I think they should sound A little bit like this Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. And I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, may inquire in his temple. We may not use those words, but if the beginning of wisdom is knowing God, then shouldn't knowing God in our trials begin more of our prayers for wisdom in our trials? Before anything else, the prayer for wisdom is a prayer to know God. Is this the wisdom you want? If it's not the wisdom you want, but it's the wisdom you're asking for, well, then you're like the wind-tossed, double-minded man that James is talking about. Audibly asking for God's wisdom, but really wanting the world's wisdom. You're like Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men. You're wanting wisdom? You can't handle the wisdom. (laughs) God's wisdom is for people who want to know God's character. Whether we explicitly ask for knowledge of God, is that your foundational desire when you ask for wisdom? To know God? the meeting doesn't go well, but you know God more, do you count that as an answered prayer? This is not easy. I understand this is not easy, but this is the only kind of wisdom that will keep us steadfast in our hardest trials. I've experienced this. (laughs) I think you've experienced this. Some of you may not know that after I candidated here in December, uh, not too long afterwards, a couple weeks later, uh, our daughter Jane got a really bad eye infection. Uh, What had happened was uh, an ear infection had ruptured and had crossed over into her orbital region, and within just a matter of hours, her eye was swollen shut. Um, We obviously rushed her to the hospital and in the emergency and in the ICU we were told that there was a good chance that Jane was going to lose her eyesight which as you know she doesn't she has full vision (laughs) Um, God's been kind there but guys I have never cried like that before I was so scared thinking about what life for her would be like without being able to see. But as I shook in that hospital room and as I could barely get words out of my mouth to pray, it was in that moment that God met me and the wisdom of who he was he was good he was in control and I could trust him that was the only wisdom that held me up. it wasn't some sort of wisdom of how to be just a better person it was a wisdom grounded in the intimate knowledge of who God was and who he was for me in Christ that's the wisdom, brothers and sisters, that we have to hold on to. If you feel like you're barely holding on this morning, or if you feel like that 10 years from now, there's a wisdom grounded in the character of God available to you. And it will hold you fast. You just have to ask. Just have to ask. God's not disappointed in your neediness. He's not miffed when you come to him with your lack of faith, with your lack of wisdom. He's ready, generous to give. He's your father. This is eminently practical. This affects everything in our lives. And that's what basically the rest of James is going to talk about, of how this reaches into every bit of our lives. And first, he's going to talk about How it relates to being Heavenly minded no matter your earthly Success that's what he's going to talk about in verses 9 through 11 so the last point Guidance to be heavenly minded No matter your earthly Success Hemmed in by Verses 2 through 4 and verse 12 I think James brings up Verses 9 through 11 as a Pressing trial these Jewish Christians are working through This isn't theoretical Verses 9 through 11 this is very real for these Christians. It's real for us. How should I think about my poverty? And for others, how should I think about my wealth? As we consider our own finances, and the conversation broadens to encompass the idea of success, which I think is an implication of this section, this is a very real application for us as a church. All of us We're on a sliding scale of success, aren't we? And a sliding scale of being unsuccessful. How should we think about this? How should we think about our success or the lack thereof? For such a practical, earthly application, I think it's just super interesting, very fascinating, of where James directs our attention as pilgrims. He points us home. That's where he guides us in thinking through this difficult conversation. He points us home to heaven. To be whole pilgrims, he guides us to be heavenly minded no matter our earthly success. He says in verse 9, let the lowly brother or let the unsuccessful brother and sister boast in their exaltation the exaltation that that Christ has reserved for the lowly brother that will echo throughout all of eternity when they reach heaven so if you're struggling to pay rent here in Palm Beach County Jesus is busy preparing a place for you in heaven boast in that boast in your heavenly address Jesus has already Paid for it. And the house he has prepared for you makes the homes in this county look like outhouses. Or if you're struggling to build good friendships. You're soon going to have friends from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Waiting for you in the new heavens and the new earth. Long dinners together. Friendcations. It's coming. So boast in your heavenly friendships if you don't have any earthly friendships right now. If you're lowly now, boast in your future exaltation. And if you're successful, James has similar guidance for you with a seemingly dark twist. He tells the rich or the successful to boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you find yourself successful from earthly standards this morning, there is nothing wrong with that. It could be a kind gift to God. James doesn't say anything about wealth or success being intrinsically wrong doesn't say anything about being successful by the world's standards as being intrinsically wrong. If you're taller than me, which is probable, I'm happy for you. James is happy for you. He just wants to remind you that your earthly success will fade away. And while it's difficult, he takes his time reminding us of that. I think that's why he reserves space to talk about the successful brother or sister one day fading away. I think he reserves space to talk about our impermanent success because he wants us to slow down in our busy lives and consider how temporary our earthly success is. And in particular, how mortal we are. Like Matt McCullough puts it in his book, Remember Death, I think James wants us to take some time this morning and remember death, our death. He wants you to remember that if your earthly success has put a little extra pep in your step this morning coming into church, that when you die and you're in your casket, you'll exit this church with the same posture as everyone else. The grave knows how to take away that pep in our step. The grave knows how to deflate Botox. The grave is indiscriminate in its disgrace. If you're socially adept and have lots of friends, that's wonderful. That's a kind gift from God. But don't forget, you're going to be buried alone. Our mortality is humiliating. That's the word that James uses in verse 10. Humiliation. And then he says something interesting. Boast in that. Boast in your humiliation. If you're successful, boast in your casket. If you're beautiful, boast in your corpse. Why would he do that? Why boast in your fading, earthly only way you're going to boast in your fading earthly home is if you know you have a better heavenly home, right? That's the only explanation for a boast about your fading earthly home. Is if you see yourself as a pilgrim, just passing through on your way to heaven. You boast in your grave when this line from Tim Keller, who died this past week, Shapes you He said All death can do to Christians Is make their lives Infinitely better That's so good All death can do to Christians Is make their lives Infinitely better If that will land on us If that will land on this church If that will shape us We can actually enjoy our success We can enjoy our earthly success. Our wealth won't eat us alive or control us. Our social networks won't be the foundation of our identities. And we'll remain steadfast to Christ. While our earthly success is tempting us to look away from Christ. We'll be whole pilgrims on earth. Following Jesus until we become perfect residents of heaven complete, lacking in nothing. which should be said is only possible through Jesus. It's only possible through the person and work of Jesus who left his home in heaven to be a pilgrim on earth so that he could go through trials of various kinds. So that he could experience a humiliating death on your behalf. So that he could defeat the grave and give you a complete body in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus became a pilgrim on earth so that you can have a home in heaven. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, This may not have been the wisdom you were looking for. Jesus may not have been the wisdom you wanted this morning, but let me tell you, he is the wisdom you need. He is the wisdom you need. Do you see that? Do you understand your need for the wisdom of God found in the person of Christ? Well, if you do, just ask. God generously gives wisdom to those who ask. Ask him, and he will give you a relationship with Jesus Christ. God gives generously without reproach. Let's pray. Father, give us, through your word, A memory A reflection on Who you are Give us a Picture, a revelation Through your word Of the person and work of your son Jesus And Father so imprint that On our hearts So that when we Go into trials of various Kinds this week that we would be able to have wisdom to know how to be steadfast in those trials. Father, encourage conversations in this church about how God has been, how you have been faithful to us in our trials. And that would allow us to do something that we can never do in and of our own power. Just to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Ask for all these things.